Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Very happy to welcome friend of the pod, returning guest, good friend of ours, David Kybe, activist, political educator, a man about town, and uh, someone who I appreciate on Twitter for many things, but most of all because, unlike many others, he says, actually, it is my job to explain that to you, and I will do that right now. So uh, please, please welcome Dave Kybe to the show. Dave, it's good to see you again, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And so today we wanted to have you on, you know, it's been nice seeing that the Democrats actually do some kind of legislation and get some things done. And um, there's a lot of prognosticating going on. And I don't know about you, but but we've been thinking there's a, there's a little too much prediction analysis, just predicting what the future will be and not enough focus on strategies to actually shape the future, um, you know, the way that we want it as, as the left. So we, we were thinking of having you on to talk about strategies, political education, and specifically uh, this book that we've talked about a little bit in the podcast before about uh, poor people's movements, why they succeed, how they fail. And in particular, this is a book that, that has been kind of dear to your heart. Um, so why, why don't you tell us a little bit about why this is a book that speaks to you and, and what you think we could learn about it. And we'll dive right in after that. Sure. So I read this book for the first time, I want to say very late maybe like 98, 99, um, in grad school. And it really changed the way I thought about, uh, social movements. It changed the way I thought about politics. It changed the way I thought about people. Um, after that, I went on and read everything else I could find by Piven and Cloward, um, among other things. And, you know, at the time I was in a political science PhD program where I think you get a lot of um, formalism of politics that is sort of, you know, abstracted away from formalism, but it's still formalism, a tremendous focus on voting and representation and Congress and all those sorts of things. Um, and not a lot of attention to all the things that people do that are political that don't fit into those sort of formal channels. And so poor people's movements did a couple of things for me. One is it helped me understand the breadth of politics being much broader than the way that I think political, most political scientists and most people that are involved in politics and, and kind of regular people imagine it to be. Um, and also at the heart of the book is the idea that regular people have power. They just have power in a different way than we normally think. Um, they don't have a lot of power in the way we normally think, but they do have some, they have capacity to, to influence things, to improve their lot. Um, but also that the moments in which that can happen are not all the time. Um, that there's, there's limits on that. that things are not free choice. Uh, things are structured um, in a whole host of ways, um, which is really important. Um, so yeah, the, the book really kind of expanded my mind at a time when I was reading lots of things that were doing that, but it really influenced the way I thought about these things. And I've gone back to it multiple times. I've done reading groups for it before. Um, I've, I've reread it a few times and there, you know, a while back I had this moment that I often have kind of watching the political discourse where there was talk of, and I don't remember the specific thing, but it was some sort of thing where people were trying to do something and Mitch McConnell said he didn't want it. And the, then the discourse became, well, then it's not happening. 
Um, and I, you know, I thought, you know, it's not up to him. It's not entirely up to him, right? Here's a person who has a very important um, position that gives him a great bit of power. But it, that, it only makes sense to me to think that he can decide that and that's final if you're ignoring those broader questions around politics, right? Around who has power and how that power can be exercised. And so I kind of returned to the book as a result of that feeling like I needed more people to be reading this book. And uh, that's what I did. I organized reading groups um, for uh, a bunch of reading groups on this book. I had people from around the country that got involved. And so I've been spending a lot of my time recently um, doing reading groups for this book. Um, which has been really generative. I've learned a tremendous, uh, a lot from talking with all the people that were involved and yeah. So that's where we are. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it, it seems like a good part of, of the book documents exactly those questions of who has the power and who doesn't realize who has the power and, and how different situations give rise to moments where those who, who usually don't see themselves as capable of being empowered can act. Uh, and, and also the ways in which we might chastise and um, talk about certain forms of protest and protest movements um, in kind of derogatory ways. And, 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 you know, there's, there's certain assumptions behind that kind of discourse too. Um, so, so, you know, may, maybe we can talk about how the book kind of structures uh, what the, the key circumstances to understand are around the limits and possibilities um, for these kind of protest movements and the change they can bring about. Yeah. So the first thing is that, um, as they acknowledge, like vast inequalities are the norm, um, in capitalism in America, right? That's the norm. And so people have reason for rebelling pretty much all the time, but the vast majority of the time they don't. Um, and so the, what the book asks is then, well, there, there are certain moments in which that happens. And so the question is why? And so the first thing that they really emphasize, kind of one of the most important points, is that um, people exist kind of enmeshed within institutions. And that institutional enmeshment really shapes both the way that people think and the way that people act. And so there's a lot of both carrots and sticks that we all experience that kind of keep us in line most of the time. The moments when you see upsurge tend to be moments when you've had kind of really significant structural shifts, um, you know, tend to be economic is the, the ones that they focus on. <coughs> Excuse me. But one of the things that they emphasize is that it's not simply that people's economic situation has gotten worse or better, um, both of which could lead people to rebel, but that Similarly, that um, the routines of daily life are ruptured, right? Because those routines are the things that kind of tend to keep us in line. You know, moments in which the routine is ruptured become moments when people can think beyond what they normally think and act beyond what they normally think. And so those and, you know, the, there's those come with probably greater frequency than we sometimes appreciate. I think capitalism necessarily involves crises, right? Um, but still, so those are kind of opportunities when those sort of shifts happen. 
Um, but there's no guarantee. And I think that's another really important point that it's not simply the conditions that people might rebel against that lead them to rebel. And it's not even simply that like these shifts that do it, but that those things are the kind of terrain on which those changes can happen. So it's not privileging economics over politics or politics over economics. It's thinking about the ways that those kind of economic shifts create the possibilities for that politics. Um, and similarly, the ways they, they limit it so that it's not the case that organizers or, you know, activists can just produce that sort of upsurge, can produce the mass strike, the general strike, you know, um, yeah. or mass protests. Yeah. I imagine you spoke to your reading group a lot about uh, how the pandemic has done just that, you know, and and I, I'm just curious what some of the thoughts amongst those uh, reading with you were about how this applied to the disruptions in daily life brought on during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic's a really interesting thing because I do think that everyone's lives were changed pretty dramatically. And it's easy to think that that meant, you know, I feel like sometimes people think, well, because everyone stayed home. But of course, that's not the case. Um, you know, people like me stayed home and other people continue to have to go to work. But all, everyone's lives changed tremendously. Right. And but it is true that many people kind of were, you know, holed up in their houses and things like that. It is true that we couldn't gather. Right. There was all sorts of ways that we gathered that were taken away. Um, there's people we maybe interacted with that we couldn't interact with or, or, you know, it was limited how we could do. And so on the one hand, like that's a good example of that shift that, um, uh, that sort of deroutinization. But of course the flip side is, is that a lot of the ways that we would connect were taken away from us. And I think especially early on, um, there was real, like people didn't know could, you know, this whole notion that we're relatively safer outside, um, you know, there was a period where we weren't sure about that or sure, weren't sure about the efficacy of masks and things like that. Um, so it wasn't until the protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, I think, that people really like started to get out and do those sort of things. But there were still like those were things that happened like in public outside. There were still real limits on what people could do. So it's this weird moment where we have that deroutinization happen. Um, but also where some of the normal things about our lives were taken away that would have been the bases for or could have been the bases for organizing. Um, and also that then there was a protest upsurge. And, you know, I think one of the things that maybe people misunderstand about that upsurge is that because it was an instance of a police killing that led to it, there's I think there's some folks that are like, so it was only about police killing unarmed black people. And I think if you, if you're more in connected to those protests, you understand that that's kind of the, the spark and it's kind of, it's very important. But, you know, people were angry about, you know, the routines of policing. People were angry about the existence of policing sometimes. They were angry about the very people who are over policed or, you know, policed in that way, um, negatively are the same people who are going to tend to experience like economic deprivation and other things like that. So there's a lot of connections here. Um, but I, one of the things I would think is interesting that I saw is that some people didn't see the things that the government has done economically as connected to those protests. Whereas I found a lot of organizers who were involved were really clear on that. They said, you know, we won 
significant limits on evictions because of those mass protests around policing. And it makes perfect sense to me, like in that moment, could you imagine like mass masses of cops going out and like rousting out people, you know, rousting out black people um, from their homes, you know, in, in the very places where there were protests and riots constantly. I mean, I, it's, it's not surprising to me that the, the people in power, I suspect, drew some of those connections, even if commentators didn't always see that. I do tend to think that the, the scope of the bill that, you know, just passed is in part, a, you know, a product of, of those protests. Um, and so these things are connected um, in a way that's maybe not uh, immediately obvious. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's something I wanted to uh, wanted to bring up that, you know, the, the book is so great in many ways, but, but, uh, especially it's so lucid. I love how like clear, you know, and, and you realize how many things that you've sort of taken for granted in the way that they like build up, like they have a sort of a priori, you know, like stance that is, that is very strip free of like, you know, uh, uh, illusion or just like models that you maybe didn't even realize you were thinking about. And it's sort of like, okay, you know, how do people behave? And it's, it's just all very interesting. And, and like, you know, you're constantly going, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Right. It must be like that. Um, but one thing they talk about that I think hasn't got that, that maybe I hadn't even thought about it this much until I, I reread this section of the book was like the, the, um, the possibility of unrest, you know, protests being uh, inspired by kind of rising expectations, you know, the idea that, you know, th- like something is things are going well, but they're not going well enough, you know, uh, you know, relative to our what we think we deserve, what should happen. And what strikes me about the pandemic is that you had like all of the elements they're talking about all at the same time. On top of the, the, you know, sort of like brutal police murder, uh, you know, ha- happening on tape of, you know, numerous people, um, you know, you had the government completely botching the response to this pandemic, uh, you know, thousands of people are dying. And then at the same time, you have this unprecedented economic thing going on, you know, through Congress and the administrative state handing out huge quantities of cash. And I think... I would imagine, I don't know, maybe you could speak to this, Dave, if if that kind of maybe broke the seal on what people thought they were allowed to demand. We're like, oh, they'll give us $1,200 checks. What else aren't they giving us that they should be giving us? Yeah, so this is a really great point that um, what the book talks about is when, when you have these disruptive protests, the government can do a couple different things. And so one of the things they can do is symbolic concessions. So my favorite example of that was when Mayor Bowser painted Black Lives Matter on the street in DC. This is a classic, you know, symbolic concession. Um, it's, it's relatively meaningless. Um, it did not work. Right? So the idea is, is you give that to people and they feel like, oh, we won something or, you know, now we can stand down because the people in charge are on our side. That's not what happened in this case. People got angry um, because it was so obviously a symbolic concession. But one of the that's one of the interesting things about symbolic concessions is sometimes they can um, lead to dampening of the movement and sometimes they can lead to an escalation. So in the in the case studies in the book, there's multiple times where 
like FDR or Kennedy give some symbolic concession that is either, you know, purely symbolic or it's maybe a, a, a law that doesn't really do anything. Um, but where then people like use that to legitimate for demanding more, right? So whether it's like, um, stealing themselves up to demand more or it allows them to justify it beyond or a little bit of both. That's a thing that can happen. Whereas also sometimes those symbolic concessions can dampen. So you never know, right? The same is true. So the another option is repression, right? That's an option. And so obviously we saw that with policing protests, you know, the police in particular who act, you know, somewhat independently, um, their main response to protests about their activity is repression, right? Designed to like people give up and go home. Um, so that we obviously saw tons of that, but we also then saw like real substantive concessions. And those two are the reason they're granted is to dampen the movement, to dampen the protest, to calm things down. Um, even among, you know, even among sympathetic, powerful people, they tend to want to calm things down. Right. But again, it can, sometimes it can, and sometimes it can't. And so, you know, yeah, you can win something and then people could say, oh, well, we could take more. One of the things I think is fascinating about thinking about, you know, last spring is that it was all of those things at once. So I've mentioned a few, but like, so you said, like, obviously there was this tremendous um, relief that was given out well less than people needed, but a, a lot in the grand scheme, thinking about things like the super dull, right? Um, the, the expanded unemployment insurance where you had people that were thankfully getting more money in unemployment than they were in their poorly paying jobs. But you also had lots of people who couldn't access their unemployment because the systems were so bad. You had people who were left out because they were, you know, running a small business that was like them and, you know, them doing the labor or people, you know, the vast variety of people doing things that aren't caught up in the UI system. I mean, it was just saying the other day that it's interesting that we haven't talked about as near as I can see a demand of expanding UI unemployment insurance to cover everyone. So you simultaneously had people winning a lot and also a lot of unmet need all at once. And even among the people who got the U, the expanded UI, many of them had to go through these awful state-based unemployment systems. So it's like you won something and they also like put you through the ringer to get it. And then you also had people that didn't win anything. So yeah, it really was kind of this like of possibility. And so they go through this range of like, it could be raised expectations. It could be things getting worse. It could be deutorization. And all of those things were happening last spring. And, but it, it really kind of hits on an important point about, and I think it's something we talked about at the beginning, this idea of the way people talk about politics as being focused on predictions, right? It kind of politics is punditry. So much of our discourse is that. And so then you have, you know, you have people saying like, this thing will never happen. And then it does happen. And those very same people turn around and say, this thing was inevitable. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but, but, but you know, it, it strikes me, Dave, that, uh, even though the discourse right now is so much about predictions, I think maybe a lot of the, the actual disputes are some people feeling nervous that other people are going to be demotivated because they're like, Oh, Biden's going to take care of us now. And so, yeah. so, so I think some leftists are like, no, 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 nope, 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 nope. I'm going to still be pissed at Biden and you got to be pissed at Biden. And, and so there's, there's again, this leftist tendency to not be able to like do two things at once, which is recognize the reality of something 
something and still say, we need to keep pushing for more. And so you, you get these, these kind of straw men arguments that like, no, that was bad. And, 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 and nothing good was in the bill versus, oh, everything's going to be okay. Right. I think, yeah, that's true. And the other element of this is if I can turn that to a, to a knock on the Democratic Party is that, um, in the lead up, so I'm thinking about the the Georgia special election. So you had the regular election, then we had the special election. And in that special election that was going to decide who controlled the Senate, it was very heavily emphasized that there was going to be these $2,000 checks, right? And that even after we got the – what was the $600 checks, they continued to say the $2,000 checks. And so when we got on the other side, you had this bill that had – $1,400 checks for a smaller group of people than that than was original, right? Which is, I mean, still, I mean, it's good that people got that money, but much more important than that is there was a whole bunch of other things in the bill that, you know, much of it that like puts money in people's pocket. But it's interesting that we're really focused on these relief checks. I'm going to call them relief checks. They sometimes say stimulus checks, but, um, but the, what's interesting to me about that is that as a result of the way the Democrats have talked about this bill, both in that special election and up till now, the focus has been on this one element of the thing. And then I've seen, I think it was, um, I was maybe one of the, the senators from Connecticut, you know, one of these guys that posts, um, was saying like, you know, there's so much else in the bill. Like, why doesn't anyone know? And I thought, what do you think your job is? Right. Like <laughs> you crafted this, you all made this bill. Like it's not my job. It's really not my job, but it's not our job collectively to, to go around and tell everyone that this is great. Um, I do think it's helpful for us to like look at what we won, but it really is the job of a, in theory, a politician to tell people about the things that they're doing to help them. And they largely have it. And it reminded me of under the Obama years where many of the things that were, they were, they did, they hid the ball. It was intentionally done, right? To, so that, you know, this money would show up in your, in your bank account more, you know, your paycheck would be bigger, but we wouldn't tell you in the hopes that <laughs> that was going to influence what you're going to do. But like, and as a result, yes, people didn't give you credit. There were things, you know, there was various things like that. And I remember kind of getting into this about the ACA with various people. Um, whereas, you know, that the, these things were in the bill, but the, you, you could have, I'm talking about the good things, not the bad things. You could have sure. like really focused on those good things and told people about it. Instruction in a way would have been obvious that they got them. And I remember talking about someone with this about the, um, People staying on their parents' insurance, assuming they have it until the age 25 or whatever, whatever it was. And someone saying, well, you know, all of my students know about it. So what are you talking about? And I thought, well, you're a college professor that spends your time blogging about Democratic <laughs> Party politics. So sure, they do. But, you know, some portion of people who got that didn't necessarily know that that happened because of the bill and didn't connect the that thing that they got with all the other things that were in there. So – yeah. Um, I mean, Biden wouldn't even sign – he wouldn't even sign the stimulus checks like Trump did. Like the, the real right. obvious it's taking rude. credit for something. It's yeah. very well, gauche. You, you, 
You know what I think it actually is? I think Democrats are embarrassed to help people because they've internalized the neoliberal idea that really markets should take care of everything. And so it's embarrassing when the government steps in and, and really we should not really talk about that or something like well, that. Well, it's, I mean, I the, think that the, the, the you, I, when Chuck Schumer proposed that, um, it was like a bill to ban the president from doing politics better than him. This is Alex yes, Green said. neutrality. Um, stuff, right? Yeah, yeah that, that you're not allowed to, uh, you know, put your name on the checks. And I think it, it's it's just a fussy, you know, it's like it feels, I mean, because it's definitely not self-regulating market, right? Because you're just literally stuffing money into people's bank accounts. It's like, oh, wait. You know, th- this like, uh, we can't be doing aggressive like politics because like <laughs> the, uh, David Broder, who's been dead for 11 years, he's going to his he's going to rise from the grave and, and call us irresponsible as it be, you know, because we're like bribing the citizenry, basically. You see, Ryan, the job of a senator is to listen to various technocrats and then just like form a judgment on behalf of the people about which technocrat is right about the policy that is totally neutral for everyone. So I, I think you all captured something really important. And so we would re- be remiss without talking about the, like the way that neoliberalism really has rotted people's brains. But I want to offer another explanation that's rooted in the book. And it's if Democrats clearly delivered benefits to people to alleviate their suffering, to solve their problems, and they did it in really clear ways, and they did it in ways that d- differentiated them from the Republicans – because I think that's another element of this, right? This, we want the bill to be bipartisan, like the, the, all the effort throughout the Obama years to bring on Republicans to these bills, no matter they didn't need those votes and they found ways to make sure that they had to get them. Um, and, you know, and then of course, Republicans turn around and they take credit. There's all these Republicans saying, Oh, look at this wonderful thing in this bill <laughs> that I voted against, right? It's incredible. But like, right? from a, if your goal was to beat them, you would ex- you would have excluded them from the process at the beginning and you would have been really clear we are giving you stuff they are not this bill is not bipartisan because they hate you and they want you to die and we don't right that's, that's right. what they would have done yeah. and that would have been true yeah. that i mean part of that the part about the republicans would be true but you know that reminds me grayson uh he's been canceled since but yeah. remember when he had the like uh the republicans plan is for you to die and die quickly <laughs> Right. Yeah. I don't love that man, but that was a great line. But yeah. yeah, So, but if, if you do those things, then what will ordinary people do? They'll expect you to continue to do those things. That's right. Exactly right. I mean, I, I always think about when, I mean, let's talk about Cuomo for a second, right? When Cuomo in New York realized there was going to be a Democratic majority and that as a result, he was going to have, he was going to be expected to do things for people. He engineered Republicans to control one of the houses of the state house to avoid that from happening by getting a handful of Democrats to switch over, right? Why would they do that? Think about, uh, New Jersey, where you had, um, for the longest time, a, a really massive Democratic legislative, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland. It's the same story. Democrats completely control the legislatures and they end up not losing to a Republican, but like not even really fighting and even kind of pumping that, that Republican up, right? That's what you do if you don't want people to ask you to do things. Right. Which is, I think, a a solution to the problem of the demands that are being made on you by your donor class, 
um, versus the demands that are being made by the voters, like the large group of voters. So I think a lot of what's happening here is if you deliver people a clear win, they might ask more. And I think fundamentally what we're seeing is something, I mean, this is referenced in the book, but Murray Edelman is the political scientist that I really associate with this, who's another person that really blew my mind when I read him, that politics is about shaping how people understand the world to prevent them from making demands, which is the reverse so is, of the this right. Is, no, this is this is the right amount of meta because it, it just reminds <laughs> me that Schumer is like the anti-FDR because Harvey K, you know, the historian who's come on a few times, you know, he, he tells us that the FDR was great not because he automatically did the right thing, but because he invited the people to push him and force him to do the right thing. And so kind of what you're saying is like the best we can expect from politicians is to want to be pushed and challenged and forced to do the things that are good. And and most politicians like Schumer and Cuomo are going to do the opposite, which is like hide the opportunity and try to make it so that you don't want to or can't think of why you should push them. And so it's kind of the, that opposite uh, relationship to to that dynamic, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, it reminds me that the, it, the book is really interesting about the way it, it, inter, it thinks and talks about the electoral representative system, which is what they call it. And I think a lot of people mistakenly walk away from the book saying that like electoral politics are, are, are unimportant. And that's definitely not true. The book is about the way that, um, movements and like policy and economic structures and the electoral system kind of all interact. So I almost think of it as like three things that are kind of working together. And so they had an earlier book before this one, which was, um, on welfare politics, which is about the policy element, right? The ways that the policy really shapes politics. And then you have a later book that is why Americans still don't vote. That's about um, specifically on the electoral system. And then this one on movement. But all of those elements are part of the story here. And so we talked about some of the ways that the political elites matter. They taught the ways that they can legitimate or, or not, you know, attack the movement. Um, they, they do make decisions about how they're going to respond about whether they're going to respond with, you know, repression or symbolic concessions or, um, or substantive concessions. And one of the things they say in the, this first chapter is that oftentimes pol politicians kind of define what the demands are. It's like the thing we're giving you is the thing you were demanding. Congratulations. You won. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, think think about this in the context of policing where people are making demand like defund became a way to kind of fight against this. Right. It's like we're not asking for police reform. We're trying to cut their budget, take that money away and put it in other things. And then you had, I'm going to go back to my own mayor again, Mariel Bowser, who said, I really think that what it, they mean is they want to reform the police and they're not talking about budget cuts. So like, come on, it's right in there. But like, that's another thing that politicians too, is they, they shape, like the demands are not obvious. Like we, and like well, the meaning of those demands are not obvious. So politicians can shape that. So there are all these sort of ways in politicians matter. There's other things in here, like, there's particular moments when there are choices made and it matters who the person is. So there's a really important point in the, the chapter on labor politics during the Great Depression where, um, Frank Murphy, um, in Michigan, like who is among the best politicians who are not, you know, 
you know, liberals or what have you, um, just chooses not to send in the violence, right? Um, and says like, we're going to, we're going to stay out of it as the, you know, GM and the workers are fighting this out. And it's this huge moment just because he doesn't do that. Um, and if someone else had been there, might, they might have. And so that matters tremendously, but that's a very different way of thinking about how politicians matter than normal. Frank Murphy in his formal position couldn't grant what the workers were demanding, but he could momentarily ensure that violence wasn't the response in a way that helped the movement win things it needed. Right. That, yes, that's a very, that's a great point. And that's something that I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're possibly seeing, we're possibly not seeing, um, uh, it, it, with this like Amazon union drive, um, be like just this, you know, you think about, um, uh, the, you know, the power of the state, you know, it's like you have this, uh, the national labor relations board, which is this almost vestigial sort of, uh, labor thing, you know, based on, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty milk toast. I mean, you know, we, we, we like FDR in this podcast, but that's always speaking relatively, uh, you know, the national labor relations act is, is not, it's not got a lot of teeth to it to say the least, but, um, you know, when the president says he's behind you, that really can, I think changes the dynamic. And there's been some reporting on this, how, uh, the the union, the retail workers union said that a thousand Amazon workers after Biden made his fairly anodyne statement of support uh, that uh, called them up or, or, you know, contacted them in some way or like, how do I start a union drive in my workplace? And that, you know, just just having someone who is who won't who's not who's telling you I'm not going to stomp on your face if you try to to make a union makes so much difference. And I will say, I never, ever, ever thought that Biden would do that in a million years. Like, it's completely baffling to me. So I, I think I think we have to identify Ryan. Ryan is too humble. He'll never admit this. We have to identify <laughs> that Ryan wrote, Ryan wrote a take. Ryan wrote a take that challenged Biden to do this. And the next day, Biden did this. So it's like oh, a wow. butterfly flapping its wings in South America that causes a tsunami somewhere else. And so you, Ryan, are responsible and for that, Sarah that Nelson, modest thing. Who apparently, you know, the head of the flight attendants union who, who uh, met, spoke personally with Biden, apparently. But uh, yeah, after she read your take, I'm sure. But this it's a good I mean, it's a really good point, And, you know. Because it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things that politicians did make pro-labor, pro-union statements all the time, right? And I don't want to oversell that, but like that was a thing, right? Um, this I, and so we went from both parties at least having to pretend to be pro-labor that when they attack labor, they had to find like not other ways to go about it, like red baiting, right? Um, to, you know, Republicans and then both and then Republicans being like overtly hostile toward labor and then Democrats being, you know, kind of half indifferent and half hostile, depending on like what type of unions we're talking about. If you think about teachers unions is probably one of the most important areas of labor right now is an area that like Democrats in Democratic controlled cities are constantly like union busting um, teachers unions. Certainly the Obama administration did, too. But it is, I think it's a really important point that 
it's hard for me to imagine Obama making that sort of statement that the one Biden did. And that has nothing to do with, I, I don't think, them as individuals. I think no. it has to do with the political moments. And yeah, so like that, I think, matters a lot. And it's, you know, you can we can be critical of, of the statement and everything else, but there's no doubt to my mind that that matters. And I also think that it's, I do think that part of the reason why people are less inclined or some people are less inclined to see that as mattering is because of this, like the, the, the red state, blue state nonsense where people have this notion of like, well, because a Democrat could never win Alabama in, in the presidency, that that means that like literally every person there is a rabid, you know, Republican. And that's not what it means that if you, if you look at, if you look at those maps and you look at, I mean, first of all, you know, who's voting is a whole nother question, right? It's not necessarily everyone. It was a lot of people last time, but that was kind of a weird election. Um, but even beyond that, like the most Republican states in the last, you know, few decades have been like 70, 30 in places. And that means in a place that Democrats would never spend any money on, do no campaigning on. The most Democratic places tend to be more like 60, 40. That means there's a lot. Of, and then, you know, leaving aside the turnout issue, that's a lot of people. And so, you know, there's this notion of like, well, Alabama is full of conservatives. So why would this matter? It's like, because it's not, it's not like this move from like a, a, a tendency or a, or a discrepancy, what have you, to a category is just so common. And, you know, do you really think that the people who work in Amazon are a like random sample of Alabamans? Of course not. You, you know, you, you know, what's ironic is like these are the same assholes who are like the electoral college is not democracy, but fuck the red states and all the people in them. It's like, well, no, asshole. That's the whole point is that there's a bunch of different people, even if they're in the minority that you should care about just because they're human, but also because they're workers. And yeah, I mean, so, so electoralism we should talk about is, is related to, um, to change, but so too is obviously changing the consciousness and meeting people where they're at. And a, a good part of the book talks about how protest for the so-called lower classes is always situated in concrete particularities against the slumlord, against the boss in the factory, right? And, and so like wherever people are, that's where they are disrupted in their daily life or that's where they have the power to do something if they have the opportunity against that factory or against Amazon. And so th there's a kind of, I think, consciousness raising that needs to happen on our part to understand whether it's Alabama or California or wherever, uh, we need to unify with all workers everywhere and all those, um, you know, who don't, who maybe don't have the chance to work and have power to, to, to kind of push against bosses. Um, so maybe we can speak to, to some other offerings of the book that, that helps us understand, you know, how to think through who is on our side and, and who, you know, who we should be thinking of in different ways. Yeah. I mean, and the first thing would be that it's fluid, right? I think that's really important. And that's, that's really a, a, a strength of the book is understanding simultaneously that things are not perfectly fluid, but also that they are fluid, right? So there's, there's, there's a lot of talk about constraint, but also an understanding that those constraints are not 
totalizing. So I really appreciate the point you just made that, that, that they talk about the idea that people experience deprivation and oppression within a concrete setting, not as the end product of large and abstract processes. And we do have a tendency on the left, and I, I too am guilty of this, of really tending to focus on these like abstract notions over people's specific experiences. And the point of the, of their making here is is not that those larger questions are unimportant. It's that when people begin to rebel, when they begin to engage in defiance, there's going to do it on the basis of those daily experiences. And so that what our work is to help people see those connections and understand those connections, right? Once they start moving, right? Because the, the hardest thing in the world is to get people moving in the first place. And the, the thing that they really harp on is that you can't do that, right? That kind of happens on its own. What we can control is what we do after it happens. But there's also this, this point, um, earlier on in this chapter where they talk about like what has to happen. Like what is the transformation, um, that leads to the emergence of a protest movement? And they say, you know, it entails both changes in consciousness and behavior. And this is something I emphasized constantly and I keep harping on, but it's, you know, first is, um, and when it comes to consciousness, first that the system or, or the aspects of the system that people experience and perceive loses legitimacy. This is step one. Step two is that people who are ordinary fatalistic, who believe that existing arrangements are inevitable, begin to assert rights that imply demands for change. And then third is a new sense of efficacy. People who ordinarily consider themselves helpless come to believe they have some capacity to alter their lot. It strikes me that a tremendous amount of political activity is, or especially discourse activity, is focused on trying to explain to people that things are bad. It's on step one. It's the legitimacy problem. And I think there's plenty of people who would like, at least on some level, accept that. And I'm going to complicate that in a minute. The bigger problem is people believing that it is changeable and that they themselves have some capacity to change it collectively. That to me is our barrier. And I feel like there's so much attention on that first part. And the thing is, I'm not, this, this question of legitimacy is not a symbol like, do you, do you think it's legitimate or not? I think people are com complicated and there's some contradictions. And I think one of the things that happens is that people have both kind of two models in their head, a lot of people. And one is this idealistic model, right? Democracy works, we vote and we, we get stuff. If not, it's some sort of like, why did that not happen? So you see this a lot, this sense of like, look at this instance of where public opinion doesn't match up with policy. What, how can we explain that? And the thing that I always emphasize is like, because that's the norm. That's how it works. What is more confusing to explain is when public opinion and policy match up. Um, so, but people have that ideal, idealistic notion and the, the cynical notion in their head. And a lot of people, I mean, you can watch sometimes people bounce between these two things. Um, because they're, they're those. For whatever reason, even though they are in the abstract inconsistent, in psychologically, they're not, I don't think. People can move back and forth between those things. And they often do it to justify um, quiescence, not acting. I really like that they, they sometimes use acquiescence and they sometimes use quiescence 
and I, this is an Edelman thing, so I'm going to emphasize it. Acquiescence is accepting the thing. Quiescence is just not fighting back. And a lot of the time, that's what it is. It doesn't mean that people like it. It's just that they're not to fight back. And so you might not fight back because you think you don't have any capacity to fight back. You might not fight back because you think the thing is inevitable. And then you might be like, well, it's legitimate. Like we voted, we lost. What are you going to do? Right. Um, all those things are possible. But it strikes me that so much of our politics and discourse is really about that first thing and ignores those other two. And so that I really think is our, our political education task is to get people not just to raise. I mean, it's good to raise questions about the legitimacy of these things. It's good to say the Senate is stupid. It makes no sense. No one on earth would like come up with this idea in the first place. Um, but also it's important to make people like many people will accept that and they'll say, but what can you do? It's we're just screwed. And that that's to me is the real problem. Yeah, the, <clears throat> all all this you've been you've been saying it 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 uh makes me think of this like child allowance thing that the Democrats passed as part of the COVID bill. Um, you know that this is a a kind of incoherent and jerry rigged, and yet nonetheless uh, almost revolutionary policy. I mean, in terms of welfare state shit, uh, you know we have fully reversed welfare reform and the earned in uh, earned income tax credit ideologically at least though they did also boost the in, earned income tax credit at the same time setting that aside we got you know benefits for all uh um mothers parents no matter how much they make uh you know handed out monthly like a child allowance and it does phase out at the top but you know that would sort of be true for anything with taxes whatever the important things at the bottom the poor you know, it's like who are the very poorest people in the country? Single mothers, basically. Like, like that's that's a the bulk of the deep poverty, the largest group in that category. Um, and uh, you know, I've seen some reporting where people have been going around asking us, like, "Have you heard about this?" And even like fairly well educated people are like, "I have no idea. I didn't. You know, I have no idea what was in this thing." Uh, a child allowance for you know three hundred bucks a month for kids. What the hell is that? And um, at the same time, also, that uh, it's going to expire after a year, you know, because they couldn't get it through the Senate reconciliation pack. And so it strikes me that this maybe is an ideal point to to, like in organizing terms uh, to try to mobilize people like to move past those two things you were just talking about. It would be like, here's a here's a thing we prove that you can do. And, you know, the Democrats even say they want to make it permanent, you know, going back, uh, you know, back to not just a, you know, uh, AFDC, the pre-welfare reform benefit for very poor mothers, but to something much better than that. And all we have to do is to beat them into voting that through before the before the midterm elections, you know, and there's a new Congress, maybe it won't be as good. And and um you know, I've been thinking about like my neighborhood in West Philly, there's probably so many people that, you know, non-tax filers who wouldn't, you know, they didn't, wouldn't qualify because the, you know, they're doing it through the IRS, which is kind of not ideal. You know, if they haven't filed their tax returns, you can't get it. You just be like, you know, here's like a, a classic thing, get some benefit and then like set people up to make a demand that like to keep it coming. Um, and then they talk uh, in, in the the last chapter of the book, you know, about like the politics of welfare. 
uh, and how that's played out. And so maybe, maybe Dave, you could talk a little bit about, you think the potential of that and, and how maybe, you know, the, the lessons of, uh, you know, previous sort of quasi protests through getting on, you know, trying to claim, uh, you know, benefits from the state type of thing. Yeah. So there's actually the, it's the second chapter and the fourth chapter or the fifth chapter are both relevant to this, right? So in, in the, the first case study is the, the case study of the, um, unemployed workers movement during the great depression. Um, there's a, a lot of things that are interesting about this, you know, because people understand that there was a labor upsurge around the New Deal and won a bunch of things. They don't know that people were marching for unemployed workers, also elderly people, which is part of how we got Social Security, but that's not one of the cases. Um, and it's a really interesting thing where you had like all these a rather large number of people thrown out of work. And one of the things that's really striking in this case, and, and that's true across all the cases really, is that people were suffering from that um, change for a long time before the government actually did anything and before a movement coalesced. And even they talk about the ways that, um, you know, the media didn't cover it, you know, the, the, the government, the politicians didn't acknowledge it. And I remember when I first read this thinking like, wow, that's so wild. It must be weird living in like pre-internet, you know, pre-cable news. We could never have that. Um, and, and then the COVID hit and I was like, oh, it turns out like we, you know, we've seen a lot of that where it's, it's not zero right coverage, but there's, there's absolutely nowhere near the level of coverage now or through the beginning or any way through that really highlights the, the extent of the suffering. Um, so turns out it wasn't quite as different today. Um, the other thing that they, they did at the time, you know, people were like, so you're saying we can't have money because we should be working, but there are no jobs. So you can give us a job or you can cut us a check, but you're going to do one of them, right? Increasingly, people got defiant. And so at first they did cut checks. Um, and then, you know, FDR uh, started to get um, antsy around questions of the deficit and also, more importantly, the work ethic, right? Uh, and so he said, oh, you know, what we'll do is we'll have the WPA, we'll have people work. And so, the, you know, a lot of people did get relief as a result of that. And we, a lot of things in this country were built as a result of that, and a lot of good things. But a lot of people were left out, right? Because there were nowhere near as many people got jobs through the WPA as there were people getting checks before that or like the need, which was even broader. Um, and you know, you don't really then get significant relief until the economy heats up or that you don't really kind of address the full scale of the problem until the economy heats up as a result of World War II. Then in the last chapter, they're talking about the welfare rights movement where you, you know, had um, as a result of these sort of big economic shifts, you had large numbers of black people who had previously been in these kind of rural areas working on essentially plantations that their, you know, descendants had worked on as enslaved people. And around the time of World War II, you start to get mechanization. So you have people kind of thrown off that land and it creates the possibility of people escaping as well, you know, leaving more, more possibility of leaving World War I and World War II both created opportunities for jobs. People could leave and get away. And so you had increasing numbers of black people moving away from the, the rural south into both southern cities and increasingly into northern cities, um, which is really important because then, you know, then you have this 
voting block because people, black people had voting rights in northern places. They hadn't in the south. Um, and so they were this important voting block in these really big industrialized states that were really important for the Democrats to win. So suddenly they become this important constituency that kind of didn't exist before that. But the other thing that happened is that um, especially after the war and then over time, increasingly, you had widespread unemployment in these cities, right? Um, particularly for black people because, you know, of racism. And this becomes very useful for the bosses um, and so on. And so and then you end up having a, a somewhat large group of, you know, unmarried women with children, black women with children in the cities. Um, now, of course, you know, as we often say, the vast majority of people on welfare were, um, were not black. They were white. Um, but, you know, over time, especially as we get into the 60s, welfare becomes coded as a black woman thing. It becomes very much about like stereotypes of black women specifically. Um, and that becomes a, a means of like demonizing that population and cutting in ways that hurt the vast majority of people on it, including the white women, right? So, but similarly, here you have people that, you know, don't, there, there are not jobs available for them. And so it's both because there aren't jobs available for like people like them and also because they have children and there's no childcare and they have to take care of their children and that's not considered valuable. Whereas like going to work in fast food or, you know, wherever is considered valuable as opposed to like caring for children, including working to care for other people's children, that would be understood as valuable. But caring for their own children was not, which I think was a particular source of um, of of uh, frustration for, for these folks. So what then you see is this vast expansion of people claiming welfare, now AFDC. Um, where it had always been the case for all sorts of welfare policies that are, you know, the, the sort of ones that are in the United States targeted for the poor. Um, you always see like far fewer people, um, trying to apply, you know, apply for it than are eligible and far fewer people of those who apply getting it than those who are eligible. So it's, it's both of those things. And so what that means is you have this vast untapped like potential. If you could get all those people to apply and if they could win the benefits that they legally deserve, right, um, for the most part. And so in this moment, in the wake of the civil rights moment of movement, you see an increase in welfare claiming. Um, and Pippin and Cloward, interestingly enough, like the, the whole motivation of the book was them looking back at the past to understand what to do in this late sixties moment. So they were themselves involved in the welfare rights movement. And so they were saying, you know, based on what we've learned, looking at these other cases that are in the book, what we think is that we should just encourage as many people as possible to go and claim, and they should claim, you know, the, the, the standard benefits that there was the, um, sometimes in places like New York, New York state, there was, um, special benefits, like you could get a winter coat, you know, things like that, um, or money for those sort of things. And so they're like, what if we just get as many as people as possible to uh, to apply in a particular moment, both because of the um, the legitimacy that came to the claims of black people as a relative civil rights movement and also riots and the fear that if you didn't do those things, you would you know, you would have this awful backlash. And so 
you see the people that run these welfare relief agencies like being willing to give out money that they previously wouldn't have. And you see this upsurge of people claiming and they're like, well, what if we just like fan those flames? What if we just get everybody to apply and it'll overrun the system? And in the short term, people will win some benefits and that'll be great. Their lives will be better because they're going to get money they need. But also maybe, and this is a really important point, the people who run those welfare relief agencies, the people who run the cities and the states whose budgets are going to be taxed as a result of this might then go to the federal government and say, you need to bail us out. Welfare mothers had no capacity, they argue, I think correctly, to get the federal government to do that. But they had the capacity to disrupt things for other people who could. And that, that there's a lot of this is about that indirect influence. And so it ultimately did not work for a variety of reasons. Um, but that was the idea. But I think that's kind of goes back to something I was saying before is the question is not how do you influence this recalcitrant people at the top? It's can you influence people that are intermediate that you have more capacity to that's influence right. and can they make that influence? Well, what's interesting, I actually got into it with uh, Jim Kenney, the mayor of Philadelphia recently, and uh, he, he was he was a, he was a little bit rude to one of my students who was demanding that the you know police be defunded. And actually, he was saying we need to abolish the police. And, and so, you know, the, the mayor was saying, well, I think you uh, in, in his smug way, I think if you ask the people in various neighborhoods, they wouldn't be behind that. You know, he kind of smugly said, I, I would be interested to see how, what a referendum said about that. And I said, well, you know, Mayor, might that be because we have so failed to address the social needs of people that uh, the only thing that they can rely on is policing, uh, which is, you know, not the thing that people actually need to meet their needs. And if you take away that, the, you know, everything that meets those needs and the thing that's not meeting those needs, but the only thing people could rely on, which is policing, don't you think there might be some legitimate fear they have? And isn't the actual answer to instead meet those social Social needs, and he got super flustered, and he started to talk about, um, you know, not having enough money. And I said, "That's fair. That's fair." Although, you know, if you defunded the police, there'd be more money for those things. But I get it. You're, you're right. The state and the federal government needs a lot more money to meet the needs of people than you have with your your mayoral budget. And he, he basically admitted that. And I said, "Well, if that's the case, shouldn't your role then be to be constantly telling the people and to yourself be demanding of the state and federal governments to help out because you can't do it with what you have?" At your your resources, right? And, and I was like really giving it to him. But what he needs is for a lot of people to give it to him, um, right? Because he want, you know, he he basically admitted that policing isn't the solution. Um, and 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 he was just like, well, what what else can I do, mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, motherfucker, you know, be part of the movement. <laughs> You know? <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things the book mentions is that um, the the conference of mayors was formed during the Great Depression precisely to lobby the federal government for more money for relief efforts. And I kind of made this point repeatedly when we were talking about the book and pointed out that as near as I could tell, the conference of mayor had made no such effort during this crisis. And then, and then like along the way, they did there was a letter put out where they were calling for these sort of things. Um, but I think. So to kind of get to back to the point about neoliberalism, I think the vast majority of people who run cities these days are very steeped in neoliberalism, are very steeped in the notion that you 
you make do with what you have and and probably even worse than that you cut tax like your job is to cut taxes and find a way to make it and to maybe push out the people that have those needs so you don't have to worry about them anymore in favor of say real estate interests which is the way that this is this is kind of the big shift from the period that Piven and Cloward are talking about where cities back then had factories and stuff in them, right? And today you don't really have that. What you have is real estate. And so that that's a part of the shift that happens. And so a lot of these policies that they're doing, including policing policies, are about luring in real estate money, luring in um, higher income, wealthier um, home buyers and things like that, and having them replace um, the people who are poorer and have less of those sort of things, you know, gentrification and policing very heavily tied in a whole host of ways. But yeah, like it, I do, I, I've thought about this a lot in this notion of when a lot of cities just said we can't do it. And instead of saying, you know, I, I think about this in the reopen debate too, which uh, we kind of hate that term because things were open, but it would have been one thing if they said, Listen, we're going to reopen restaurants or we're going to let restaurants open at 25% capacity or 50% capacity, but also understand that we, what we, the reason we're doing that is because of the economics. And we, if we had money, we could do things safer. Um, relatedly, it's, it's really fascinating during the pandemic to be talking about, continue to talk about public safety as solely about the police. You know, like while we're watching the, the vast, human and economic impacts of the pandemic that could have been addressed if we had stronger public health. Um, and we don't have that. And think about uh, Cuomo again, who was simultaneously keeping people in prison and then jails, um, which is very bad for COVID's being spread both in, in those places and without. Um, and also was like closing hospitals and was trying to cut Medicaid. Um, that's not public safety, but we've so associated public safety with policing. And so, yeah, you end up with, in a lot of places, they had budget cuts across the board, except with policing. Um, and, you know, it's always fascinating when it's like, well, what if you ask people in this, in the, in the city, what would they do? They wouldn't say cut public health during a pandemic. And the, so the question that I always think about is, it's not this abstract question of people like, do you want to reduce the police budget? Cause that's not a, that's not the question. That's not a real question. What you're, you're asking is, do you think we should keep increasing the police budget in order and then cut in all these other areas, cut money in housing, cut money in taking care of homeless people, cut money for public health and for, for medical care and the elderly and all those sorts of things. And I think that would be a very different conversation. It's again why I love the defund demand because it encourages us to make these connections that we normally don't. But Mayor Kenny is not at all interested in having a referendum on all those questions. He is simply one and, or even on police themselves, because if you said, do you think police should be able to murder people with impunity? Do you think that they should be stopping random young black men for no reason? No, no, no. All these sorts of things, though, none, we're not going to put any of those things up for a referendum either. It's solely this abstract question of more money for cops or not. And quite frankly, yes, people, people believe in cops. Most people do because it's hegemonic. Um, although thankfully far fewer maybe than used to. But also, um, people 
believe in meeting human needs. They're like, that tends to be very popular. And the, what they do is they keep that off the table again is telling you it's impossible. Right. And so I think there we see the, the elites using that thing I was talking about before. They're, they're on number two. This thing is not changeable. Right. It's a very powerful tool. And that's been used, like, especially around budget questions going back to at least after re- like reconstruction. This is something that Du Bois talks about in Black Reconstruction in America, where you had, um, State governments where you had black political power, very few of them were totally, you know, overwhelmingly black um, leadership, you know, but they had, um, you know, black legislators and all this sort of thing, black people voting. And they did things like we're going to build schools and we're going to build hospitals and we're going to build roads and we're going to, you know, those sorts of things. And Southern elites hated that. And the, what they did is they said, Oh, you know, that there's, they're taking all the money. There's, it's, it's corruption. It's the deficit. And those sorts of things were made like in that moment immediately after the end of slavery. And it continues to be deployed as a means of attacking the suggestion that we can spend money to meet human needs, particularly when among the people we're talking about are black people. That, that's a very common thing. And you continue to see it in the policing discussions today. Well, it's been <clears throat> right over a bit over an hour here. Um, I guess probably should, should uh, wrap us wrap up here, but uh, I've, I've got just one more um question for you dave uh on on this uh i guess i just wanted you to weigh in you know there there's there's this uh data data geek guy david shore who has uh you know he he has a lot of studies on things and i think um you know he got fairly famous when he was fired um supposedly, I mean, there was some controversy, ended up losing his job. I don't know the details. I've heard conflicting accounts, but he was talking about, uh, you know, the civil rights movement and um, riots and how like, uh, you know, urban unrest pushed people away from the democratic party in 1968. And so like as a, a sort of politics of, we need to go in, you know, the influencers, the Instagram influencers and the podcasters, they need to go in to the, you know, the, 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 the broke ass, uh, you know, districts of, of Philadelphia and Detroit. And we need to Hector them with a, you know, citation saying, Hey, you people, you're, you're, uh, negatively impacting the, uh, political fortunes of the party that is most likely to cater to your needs, though not, you know, in any sort of like positive sense. Um, and so I wonder if you, you know, just like to tell us, is that a sensible perspective? Maybe I've weighted the scale slightly, but, but like, you know, if you don't believe in that, as I suspect you don't like what is a more sensible way of thinking about like this type of, you know, uh, issues like duh, defund the police uh, doesn't pull particularly well. Uh, you know, you risk like throwing the election, you know, get like um, how do you respond to somebody with that sort of uh, criticism? Yeah. So one thing is, and this is a point that Piven and Cloward make, and I'm 
summarizing here, but it's basically that backlash is is inevitable. That when you have, there's this thing that you see, particularly among Democrats, liberal professional circles, which is this notion that like we implicitly, that we all agree on the goals, that we just disagree on the means. And so if we can just kind of come together and have these like common sense bipartisan solutions, um, that everything will be fine. And so, you know, I think about this in the healthcare context where it's, a, you know, you're saying you want Medicare for all, but what if we just like work with the Heritage Foundation, work with the Republicans, <laughs> but the Republicans want people to die. They don't want everyone to have yes, healthcare. That's right. And so, that's I mean, right. some portion of Democrats don't either, but you can't. So what happens is the best case scenario there is you get. So if I want everyone to have health care and they want like only rich people to get health care, then you know, maybe we, right. you know, maybe we meet in the middle and, and it, but like you, there's no way to win my goal by working with them, right? Of everyone having health. Well, my goals are quite bigger than that, but like as a, as a beginning measure, um, you know, Pivot and Cloward say that there are fundamental interest and value conflicts involved in politics. And particularly when we're talking about poor people making demands on the state. Um, and that, so this idea that, I mean, they, they explicitly talk about this because they're, they're responding people that make this point. Like if you just asked, if you, if your strategies were less in people's face, if your, your rhetoric was less in people's face, um, if you just asked in a more nice fashion that you could win stuff without the backlash. And they said that this is absurd that you're not going to win anything without the backlash. And so what, what people are doing then is they're trying to avoid the backlash in a way that will ensure they don't win anything. Um, yes. They, key point. If you, if there's no backlash, that means you didn't do shit. That's a, right. Yeah. I'm That's remembering right. that for the future. Yeah. That's right. And so the other thing I think about, is that the people who were making the defund demand, the people who were out in the streets, like leading those protests, not everyone, but many of the people, or the people who, for example, burnt down the police precinct in, in Minneapolis, they don't care whether Democrats win or not. I just think we got to be like, so you, if you're a politician, again, like this goes back to my question, like, what do you think your job is? Why is it that Democratic politicians think it's the job of, say, Green Party candidates or people that are like protesting against policing to help them win? That's not their job. It's your job as a Democratic politician or strategist to help you win. It's not other people's job to help you win. And and it's fascinating the way that, that again, this becomes this sort of treating as though the only real actor is the voter Right. Or the only real actor is that person in the street. The reality is those people don't care. They do not see Democrats as allies. Democrats have done nothing to make them feel like allies. And so you have to accept that and you have to find a win, way to win despite that. And I would say the way you do that is by giving people stuff that meet their needs. So they might be like, you know, I really don't like that these people like are on the, the fun police side, which they're not. But they, you know, like I was unemployed and I got, you know, my my check and it was easy. They I didn't even put me through the ringer. I didn't get evicted. If you deliver people material benefits and you do it in a very public way and you say you deserve this and we're giving it to you and they're not. I am unconvinced that any of this other stuff will matter. There were people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 
despite being superly open, openly racist. Because they, you know, because of the, you know, things were collapsing and they, they, people, you know, there were literally people, I mean, not everyone who were like, well, yeah, you know, he may be this, but, you know, he's going to solve this problem. And sometimes he didn't, sometimes he didn't. I think that this presumption, movements are not here to help Democrats win. And you might not like that, but that is just true. And so if it's true, then Democrats have to find a way to win that doesn't involve those movements doing their work for them. But Democrats constantly want other people. They want the media to attack Republicans for them. They want, you know, movement people to help them win elections. Like they need to do their job. Um, and if they're not going to do it, that's on them. I'm, yeah. Yeah. And here's the other thing. This is more of a comment than a question, but maybe you can, <laughs> you can treat it as a question. But like, cause the, there is this balance between, look, the, those two things you said, the idealism of, I don't need to do anything. Everything will be okay because the elites will take care of it versus the cynicism of nothing's possible. So it doesn't matter what I do. And like that sweet spot is tough when you have some success because like the people who are like, that's not enough piss off the people who are like, I just fucking fought for this. You're going to tell me it doesn't matter. Right. And so, so you need that balance of like enjoying the wins and recognizing the people on the ground, not the leaders, but like, okay, fine. Throw a bone to the leaders or whatever. Like the, 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 the people you pushed in, in office that, that went along with it. Fine. Give them some credit, but be like, thanks very much. Now, what are you going to do for me next? Right? Like there has to be this mentality that somehow, um, is motivated, uh, enough, which means I think that you have to enjoy the wins and really appreciate them and, and recognize them as wins, but never be satisfied. There has to be this like democracy and socialism has to be, I think, this ongoing push and struggle, but that's fucking exhausting without enjoying the wins. And it's exhausting if, if you're, if you're cynical, um, but you can't, you know, you can't be acquiesced and you can't be idealistic. So, so what, any thoughts on that, that balancing that sweet spot psychologically? I'm, I'm very skeptical that we need to like focus on people's emotional reactions because those are different. Right. And so, um, and I think also that there's this presumption sometimes that, well, if you're, I mean, you see this a lot of like liberal critiques of, of the left is this, well, the reason you're unsatisfied is because you're fine. The people who like, <laughs> and it's like, no, like some people who are very bad off are excited about the thing. And some people are like, screw these guys. Like people have all sorts of emotional reactions and also like people have different capacities to, to fight regardless. And I'm just thinking about people that I know mm -hmm. who are among the most cynical people. Like they never think they want, everything's a loss, right? Who are organizers who go out every day and fight in ways that I can't, like I just beyond sure, my capacity. Sure. But I, I do yeah. think, and they do that despite being like, yeah, oh, this is no good all the time. Um, <laughs> I do think that like there's something to be said about getting the facts right. So I've seen a lot of critiques of this, of the bill, like people who are saying, you know, oh, a $1,400 check is going to have um, po child poverty. It's like, well, no. Right. And that's not the part yeah. of the bill that does that, right? Yeah. There's a whole nother problem with that as near as I can tell the child poverty thing, which is going to be very good. But this, this having the, as I think if I read it correctly, the original study said that it could have child poverty and that that study was based on the $15 minimum wage being in there. So it's, 
So it's not going to uh-huh. do that. But it is. It's going to yeah, tremendously right. reduce child poverty. But again, this gets to my point. Why are people so focused on those checks? Because Democrats focus them on those checks. But and I, so when I kind of talk about what's in the bill, I'm not doing it because I want to defend the Democrats or even I don't care if you're excited or not. For me, that's not the important question. But I do think that it's valuable for us to like understand what actually happened. And we should treat it. I mean, the, for me, the important thing is to say this stuff, like the size of this is really unfathomable from the perspective of like 2009. Right. Um, that's a difference. And a lot of people said, Oh, you know, it actually got cut down. The size of the checks got cut down and who they went to got chucked down. But I, as I understand it, the overall bill size stayed the same. They didn't um, negotiate that down. Um, yep. so this is, it's a lot of money. And yes, some, a lot of it is temporary. So, but this gets to what we said before. This, to me, this happened not because of the benevolence of political leaders. But because of the fact that people had been in the streets over the last year and importantly, the fear that that will happen even more, because usually that's what's going on. It's not just what you're doing, but also the fear that more is coming. So some some people's emotional reactions matter, you know, specifically the fear of the people in power who might lose their power. But but also, like, even if it's not the emotional reactions, uh, we do need to inculcate a, a dissatisfied, rebellious nature as much as possible in the people. Right. Like a, a recognition that the status quo is never OK and that there's something that our anger can do about that. I think those are effective states that are healthy to perpetuate. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because that's what this book is about. It's about defiance. It's about people refusing to play their roles. And one of the things that's really powerful in it is this notion that for a lot of us, we feel powerless. And as an individual, maybe we are. Um, But what they talk about is this idea that everything depends on the vast majority of people playing their role. And so there's always somewhere where there's some people who, if they didn't play their role, it could jam up the system. And so that your capacity to that is different. The, the industrial workers in that particular moment had enormous leverage. So even though Piven and Clower critique the, the strategies, the choices that organizers made, they say they won a lot and they won a lot because they had a lot of leverage. If you compare that to say the welfare mothers in the final chapter, they had a tremendous less amount of leverage. They were, you know, a yeah. demonized population within a demonized population. So that doesn't mean that they couldn't win anything, but they were on a lot worse grounds to begin with. But the, this idea that, you know, in, if, if people collectively are willing to kind of withdraw their consent by not following the rules, whether it be not paying your rent, striking, um, School truancy is one of the things they talk about. There's all these sorts of things where you can just not play your role, where you can um, seize the system up in a way that meant, might lead the people who run those things to demand more from beyond us. And so that is invisible to most of us most of the time. And when we talk about in a labor situation, people say, but if I went on, if I went on strike, I'd get fired. And it's like, well, yes, if you personally went on strike, you would get fired. But what if? 
everyone <laughs> at your work went on strike. And sure. so sometimes the answer is you still get fired, but that's a different question. And I think that's the other element. So it's, it's the inculcating the defiance, the understanding that the ways that playing your, like refusing to play your role gives you power. And that the question is not about you as an individual, but us collectively. And all of those things are, are just this really big shift in the way we're asked to think about politics. And once you do, it doesn't mean that everything is possible. It doesn't mean that you can win whatever you want. It doesn't mean you're not going to lose a lot of the time. But it does open up a lot of possibilities in a way that are not there with the standard ways of thinking about politics, you know, the punditry approach or the, you know, just get behind a politician and stand for them approach, the, you know, which is the normal ways that people do these sort of things. And all of those are just like the opposite of what you would do if you want to exercise some power. And if you acknowledge that, you know, the government isn't the good policy machine and it's not the representation machine, um, but it's a thing you have to like really punch in the face in order to get anything good out of it, um, then that's a much better stance to take. I think punching the government in the face is a good place to end. What do you say? Yeah, Ryan? that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel, I feel that, that there's seldom been a more, uh, a, a, Promising prospect of punching the government in the face over the next, uh, you know, year uh, and, and change and hopefully longer than yeah, that. Yeah, you know what? We will we will uh, continue the whippings and the punchings of the government until morale improves and they, they do what we <laughs> Absolutely. want. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Dave, Dave, Dave Kive, um, we will we'll we'll uh, link to uh, Poor People's Movements by Francis Fox Piven and Richard uh, Cloward. A uh, really great book. Really do recommend it. You can find it for free online if you you know sniff around a little bit. Um, I think she's dead, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she's still with us. He is. She, he is not. Um, but it's it was many years ago. I'm sure she will not be upset if you uh, don't pay for it. But you know, you know, if you want to cut Amazon in, go for it. Um, <laughs> but thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Um, and we'll have you back very soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy.